Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture podcast broadcast from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with another movie review. We're talking about Ben Affleck's Live By Night, his 2016 gangster movie that he came out with. And I have a very special guest uh, tonight to, to, uh, to help review this movie with me. He is the host of Holy Badcast and Real Fans of Real Movies, and possibly one of the most positive people you could probably find on the internet. And that is Mr. Andy DiGenova. Please, Andy, how are you? I'm great. How's it going? One of the most positive people on the internet? I didn't know that. Yeah, you you really are like a sh- <laughs> uh, bright star. Just like just like nothing would seem to be going wrong with you. Like, like as the jokes with the, that Jamie uh, has made on Holy Badcast, it's only a handful of times that you really lost your cool. And I, I kind of like strive for that because I know I lose my cool a little too easily. And I'm just like... You know what? No, just relax. Everything's going to be fine. And just try to have a positive <laughs> outlook on everything. All right, nice. Well, I, I try. So uh, that's that's good to hear. Thank you. No problem. And so, as we said, we're doing a review of Live By Night. So let's jump into that right now. <laughs> fourth movie from Ben Affleck, the others uh, being Gone, uh, Gone Baby Gone, The Town, and Argo, and then obviously Live By Night. Uh, Andy, what's your feelings on his previous uh, works? I Well, I, I'll tell you, I've loved every film that he has made as a director. Um, I saw Gone Baby Gone a little late in the game. I didn't catch it. Not Yeah, Gone Baby Gone. Sorry. Uh, I didn't catch it in theaters, and so I saw it you know, at home mm-hmm. a year, a year or two later. And it was excellent. Uh, then I remember seeing the town and I thought that was even better. I thought that the town was awesome. It's one of my favorite movies of that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Argo, he just kind of kept getting better. I think that, but they're all, they've all been really great movies. Um, and so, yeah, so it's to the point where he's one of those filmmakers where I'm excited whenever he is working on anything, I'm, I'm going to follow him along. And uh, yeah, I think, I think all three of those are really great films, and uh, so I was excited about Live By Night, the fact that it was going to be his fourth. Uh, and I, I agree with you that saying that like he has had this progression that he's been getting better and better as each movie. I did not see Gone Baby Gone in theaters. I, it didn't come. I think it was. I think I may have rented or bought something else from Miramax and won the previews on the DVD or Blu-ray had Gone Baby Gone, and I was like, all right, Casey Affleck, I enjoy and. Ed Harris, I have, I have, I don't think that I've seen a movie where he has a bad performance in it. So I was like, all right, I'll eventually check it out. Blew me away, um, and I think that's of all of his work. I think I'm maybe still my favorite of his. Um, then with the town, I saw, I saw, a, saw, I saw that in theaters, and I with a few of my friends from uh, college when I was actually uh, going to a community college here on Long Island, and loved it and. Because Ben Affleck and Jeremy Renner and Pete Postle White, I, I think that's how you pronounce his name, the guy who played Kobayashi in Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So I was like, all right, of course I'm going to be in for that. I did not see Argo in theaters. I remember I was actually up in Oswego at that point, and I was like, oh, I, I really need to check. I really need to check out Argo, and it was just one of those things where life got in the way, and it was out of theaters quicker than I expected. And then, of course, it had it became it won Best Picture a year it came out, correct? Yeah, it did. Okay, okay. I was making sure about that. Um, and I really enjoyed Argo, and I, I don't think there's a bad performance in Argo. I think it's a fantastic movie. And, of course, when Live By Night was announced, I'm like, all right. And it's from the same author of the series of books that Gone Baby Gone was based on, as well as Mystic River. So I was like, you know what? How can I not be excited for it? Um, and you you said before you got an early, you got a chance to see an early screening of Live By Night, correct? Yeah. Uh, it's funny because I – all I knew was that Ben Affleck was making a movie called Live by Night. I knew nothing about it. I there hadn't been a trailer yet. Uh, I didn't bother researching it. I didn't realize it was based on a novel. So all I knew is that Ben Affleck's next movie was called Live by Night. I knew nothing more than that. And I got invited to a screening and it was months and months and months before, uh, you know, before even any marketing came out or or before we saw much of the film i just got lucky with it and so i walked in and and watched it completely fresh and uh it was in pretty good shape it was i I feel like it was mostly finished um and then i had the chance to see it again at another advanced screening um and then i got to attend the premiere and see it a third time so uh so i saw this movie three times before opening night, which is very rare and very crazy. It was just the way it worked out. Uh, so yeah, I, I just kept seeing it and it was free, which was, which was great. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I know this movie really well, even though I don't own it and I've never paid to see it. <laughs> um, was there a huge difference between like the earlier screening and then the subsequent screenings you went to? Very little. Okay. Uh, yeah, very little difference. Um, there was only one notable difference that I can remember, and uh, it was it had it had to do with some details of uh, Zoe Saldana's character. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like in the original cut, she was married already when she meets Joe. Okay, and then in the theatrical cut, there's no mention of her husband. No, so so that. That's the only difference I remember from the from when I saw it the first time and when I saw it, you know, in its final form. Gotcha. But all right, then so let's jump into the movie right now. So the movie opens up and we're introduced to Ben Affleck's uh, character via voiceover, and then he's Joe Coughlin. And he's a heist man in Boston after his service in World War One, and we're introduced to uh, Emma, who happens to be a woman that was in that was during that was there during a heist that he was committing. And we find out that she is actually the girlfriend of one of the Irish mobsters in Boston, Albert White, and he's actually sleeping. Uh, Joe Coughlin sleeping with uh, with Emma behind Albert White's back. And from the like opening few scenes, we get to see Joe Coughlin's crew. We get to see the kind of violence and everything being committed in Boston. Like, how would you first like feel like how these scenes were progressing and how quickly the story was setting itself up? Well, I will say this, that, like, I didn't – when the movie started, again, having done no research, I thought I know where it was – I thought I knew where it was going, and then I was wrong. It was like this – the first 
act of the movie, or I don't even know if it's the first act. It happens pretty quick, but the first sequence or, or set in the movie of of meeting Joe, finding out about you know he how he's sleeping with Albert White's girl, and uh, they have this great you know this plan to run off together. Like I thought, oh, that's what this movie's going to be about. It's going to be about him trying to run off with the girl and then everything changes so quickly. And there's just so much more to the movie that, that we, you know, eventually find out about. So it's just, it's funny because I thought I knew what the movie was going to be. And it really, uh, you know, it really changed based on my expectations because, uh, it wasn't that at all when, and I, I think that that's, part of of why the maybe reviews weren't as good is I feel like a lot of people thought they knew what they were going to get and this movie isn't exactly what they expected because it wasn't what I expected just from the first 15 minutes of the film and most people would see that as a positive as a plus that like oh you went in with a certain expectation and you got something different I mean the cliche is with people with people's views in Hollywood on Hollywood is that like Nothing's original. Everything's a sequel, a remake. There's no new ideas coming out of Hollywood. And so you have a movie where you have kind of preconceived notions of the kind of genre it's in. And you're like, all right, I kind of know where this is going. Because the first image of Ben Affleck we see, we see him beat up in a hospital uh, bed. And you think, like, all right, this is probably the end of the movie. Because how many movies have started with the end of the character saying, like, already beat up and... It's the whole movie is the journey to get to that point and see how the resolution is afterwards. You think of recently uh, John Wick opened up like the first John Wick opened up like that or Casino where uh, De Niro gets in the car and it blows up. You're like, all right, they're not going to have Bob uh, De Niro just in it for five seconds. They're going to say how this story end up there. And this Live By Night does a very similar thing. Do you think the story goes a little too quickly here? Do you think it, do you think it cuts it's a little too fast for its own good. Do you think it should have taken more time to set things up? Um, I don't know. Not necessarily just because there's a lot of ground to cover. And I think that's the thing about this movie is that it is, it's a novel. Like there's so much that happens and you go on such a long journey with Joe that, um, yeah, I mean, I, it could have taken its, its time more, but it just would have made for a much longer movie. Mm. And I feel like, uh, because there was so much more of Joe's life and his journey to get to that. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that the, uh, the whole intro and, and kind of what happens with Albert and then what happens to Joe, I feel like you get everything that you need, but uh, yeah, there's not a lot of fat there. It's cut very tight. Yeah. And I think like the one scene that kind of lingers on, and I think it's the right scene to kind of have its moment. It's, when we're introduced to Joe's father, played by Brendan Gleeson, who is a police chief, and he sits down, he kind of invites himself to dinner where Joe and Emma are having a nice posh restaurant, and he kind of kind of calls her out that, oh, my email's going off. Apologies, people. Um, he kind of says to Emma, like, I know where you're from. You're from North Dorchester, and you're kind of... He's in so many words saying that she's kind of a loose woman and he's saying that to her face in front of Joe and Ben Affleck's is kind of like dad that's a little rude on you like you're just meeting this woman you're all, you're making that kind of uh judgment towards her and of course she and Emma does not take it kindly and, and has her kind of retort 
towards it like oh i think you're on you're actually on albert white's uh payroll and it's kind of like a tit for tat and you feel bad for joe in the situation of him dealing with like oh it's the kind of it's how many people have had that relate that situation where you're in a relationship with somebody and your parents don't like them mm-hmm. yeah i mean yeah he, he basically calls her trash in in not so many words and so yeah it's this really awkward conversation where uh you know joe is out with with uh with this girl that he's he's in love with or he thinks he's in love with and uh yeah so yeah it it that is probably you're right where the the movie takes its first big breath cuz when it starts like it it uh it moves quick you know you you see you immediately jump into a heist and you immediately figure out what what Joe is up to and this is where you get your first real character beat trying to understand where they're coming from and and what they want yeah, and I mean, like, like the very first like heist we see, it's all done in one take. It's the one long, steady cam shot that follows the gang in, goes like a, a few three sixties around them as they rob everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, I know I noticed somebody, one of the the gangsters at the table, um, bald dude who actually takes Emma away after what happens between uh, Emma, Joe, and Albert later, is actually Derek Mears, and he. Um, played uh jason in the friday the 13th remake uh i was gonna say i know that name why do i know that name that would be why <laughs> and, uh, and i'm uh like i didn't notice him the first time watching the movie i, I noticed him when he grabs emma and he drags her away later but watching it the second time earlier in the week he's sitting at the table I'm like oh there's derek mirrors i'm like so he wasn't just in that one scene of the movie i'm like okay i'm glad he gets more work than just one scene um and like you said we have this whole montage of this uh, gang war that's going on between Albert White, Albert White and Prescatori, and you see a montage of these men on either side being killed in various ways, and you do get set up the kind of violence that you have to expect, and I think that's a really strong way to introduce, like, alright, this is the kind of movie we're going to be dealing with here, so if you're not in it in, in these few minutes, you're probably not going to be in it uh, at all. Yeah, well, and I think that, like, the movie starts off very much kind of very gangster crime heists and i think that again that's what people were expecting from the movie that's what i was expecting i thought we all kind of thought it was going to be the town but during prohibition you know a prohibition version of the town and aside from this first you know this first section of the film it changes drastically from that and i think that again maybe that's where where people's expectations were a little different than what we got because again that that happened to me is i was like oh wow i I didn't think this was where this movie was going. Um, and once I did and accepted it, I, I really loved it. Spoilers. I, I, I loved the movie um, because it was a nice surprise that it wasn't exactly what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. And so after that little montage and everything, uh, we see that Joe's been approached by Albert White and then, then by Prescatori, both of them wanting them. Joe just joined their opposing gangs and Joe's like, I'm not going to serve on anybody anymore because of his experiences in World War One. He's like, I'm not a, I'm not a gangster. I'm a, what what was the phrase he uses? Uh, oh, I'm a bandit. That's the what it was. I'm a bandit, not a, not a killer or anything. So, and I think it's the first inclination of what the kind of character he is and kind of what happens later on. But Prescatori's like, all right, fine. If you don't join me, I'm going to tell Elver White that you're sleeping with his lady. And he's like. Joe goes to Emma like, all right, I think we should get out of here. Go to California. I have a brother out there. I think he's a screenwriter or a stuntman or 
screenwriting stuff, man. Not too sure. And I, I, I've always found that like pretty funny. And so they agree to go on one more heist. And of course the heist goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate this because in this kind of action scene, because it opens up with like, it's Joe's, his head is not in the game. He is, and he immediately, you see that because he tries to throw the car and drive and he immediately goes in reverse and crashes the getaway car. And then, then it causes like that just moment of hesitation allows the cops to descend on him and his crew as he's trying to escape. And one thing I have to like commend is that so many movies nowadays and a lot of action movies, we everything's going at 80 to 100 miles per hour. You look at the Fast and Furious movies or any other action movie like Mad Max Fury Road. And it's kind of a standard of high octane action. And yet Ben Affleck was able to do this with like the Model T car, which I think is kind of commendable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. To do, like, an exciting car chase, but with cars from, I guess it'd be the 20s, right? That, yeah. That, that do not go as fast as the ones in Fast and Furious. Exactly. But yeah, this, this whole sequence is probably, I mean, it is where the action really kicks off, and it's it's arguably the most impressive action sequence in the film, at least until the end. Um and so, yeah, this I feel like this is the sequence that that gives people what they were wanting from the movie <laughs> um, of, you know, like a heist gone gone wrong and a chase and a shootout. And it's 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 a really well done action scene. Yeah. And him and his crew split up. One group goes in another car and Joe takes the initial the original getaway car to drive the cops away. So he's followed by two police uh, cop cars and and just like in typical uh, movie fashion where cars on either side of him they're both shooting guns at him he hits the brakes they shoot at each other causing their own accident and it, i was like i don't know how like i have to really commend the stuntman for who doubled ben affleck in this moment because he crashes his car and he's he his body gets lunged or tossed from the car does a few rolls and stops i mean Car crash, one thing, yeah, you can you can do all kinds of safety bags, but being thrown from a car and hitting the ground and rolling, I think, is a, something you don't see that often in movies. Mm-hmm. And so Joe wakes up, and you're like, somehow he lived through that. The cops are dead, and he's like, ah, oh, crap, now I'm, now I'm uh, associated with a cop killer. Goes to find Emma and sees her. He's like, all right, we're going to have to get out of here. we got to get out of here now. Turns out that she is set up. Uh, she set him up and sold him out to Albert White in the hopes that they would just beat him up and let him live. But uh, of course, you never trust a an evil gangster. He's obviously going <laughs> to double cross you. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ben Affleck takes a really severe beating in this scene. Oh, and, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah, and like, what was it like? Has that one moment where he's like on all fours, he's on the floor, and the guy comes up behind him and kicks him in between the legs, and I every time, like both times, I just clench, like oh, yeah, it's it's painful to watch. <laughs> yeah, and so then Albert White's like, it's like, all right, take Emma and get get rid of her. He's like, wait, I thought you, you said you were gonna you were gonna let us live. Like I lied. Like of course, and they take uh, Joe out to execute him, and he's saved by his uh, dad and police officers who want their own revenge of course joe's like hey i'm alive and no so the cops beat him down with nightsticks right yeah he takes two beatings in the same night it's rough but at least the cops let him live yeah 
And, and I love that moment where it's the next scene. It's just a doctor running down the list of injuries that he's occur that he's uh, endured. And he's like, yeah, he's got broken li- uh, broken ribs. He's his skull's not made out of bone. I'm not sure what it's made out of, especially with your son. And then we see the scene, the very opening of the movie, with him in the uh, in the hospital bed. At this moment, did you think, all right, you didn't? Did you have any kind of feelings like you didn't know where the movie was going to go at this point? Well, yeah, I mean that's exactly it. Because as you said, when it starts out with him in the bed, you figure, oh, most of the movie is going to be leading up to him being back in the bed, and instead we're whatever fifteen minutes in, and we're like, oh, now we're in the bed, so. We don't know what the hell comes next. So, yeah, it was a little surprising, um, but, you know, not necessarily bad. Just just you again, just playing with expectations. You thought that it was going to take us a lot longer to get to where we start with him. And it happened so quickly that now the rest of the movie, we don't know where it's going unless you've read the book, which I didn't. Gotcha. And Brendan Gleeson tells Joe, or Joe's dad tells him, like, oh, yeah. Emma died in a car wreck and you're going to have to go to jail. And he's like, no, she can't be alive. She can't be. And he's like, all right, well, you're going to have to go to jail regardless. I don't care. I love you, son, but still. And we do get to see that love portrayed because Brendan Gleeson goes to, I guess it's the district attorney. Uh, Yeah, that would be, that's, I, I believe so. Okay. And who is, who's good old Clark Gregg? Yes. A- Agent Coulson from the Marvel films. Of course. And I, I just, he's one of those actors I feel like, oh, I wish I could just have more of him. And I wish he was more in the movie. Sadly, he's only in for this one scene. Yeah, he's he's he's, he's always great. And uh, and so you're always happy to see him. But yeah, he only has this one scene. And um, it's revealed that, uh, that uh, Joe's dad has dirt on him. And he's like, all right, you're going to help my son get a reduced sentence and i know like i'm stepping down from chief because of course how am i supposed to be a leading police officer when my son's a cop killer it just Mm -hmm. it's just bad it's just a bad look politically for everybody in boston so he joe gets sentenced to three years in state prison and two weeks before he's released his dad passes away which sucks and it's just like uh, like like really like I understand, like, the author is like, all right, and every, every good story has drama, and the worst, the worst place, in the, if they're in worse situations, the better, because it, it makes a more interesting story. It's just like, oh, come on, because you know we're not going to have Brendan Gleeson for the rest of the movie, and uh, I'm, the one, I'm the kind of person who's like, the more Brendan Gleeson, the better. I mean, the guy could read a phone book, and I'll be interested. Yeah, and I mean, and he makes he only has a couple scenes, but he really makes them count, and he really makes an impression. So you're right, like the fact that Joe doesn't, you know, his father goes out on this limb for him, uh, puts it all on the line, so he only has to do three years, and so he still has some life to come back to. Um, and that Joe doesn't even get to say goodbye to him, it is the, that heartbreaking moment, and you know, and the whole movie has this, you know, the very uh, traditional noirish voiceover. And so, you know, he, he just says it. He goes, you know, I, I get out such and such day or such and such. He goes, he goes, if I'd gotten out two weeks earlier, I could have said goodbye to my father. And it's like, ah, oh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's also very real. You know, like you, you don't always get the, that touching goodbye in real life. And so, uh, so while it was sad, I, I appreciated that. 
Yeah, and it's the first indicator that that sort of sentiment is going to ha- pop up a few more times throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Where Joe has a certain expectation or has a desire for a certain outcome and it's not going to go the way he wants it. Right. And so after he's out, Joe wants purely revenge at this point on Albright. So much so much so that he's willing to go to Prescatory and say, you know what, I'll work for you as long as I get Albert White. And Prescatory's like, all right, fine. I mean, I've driven him out of Boston in the three years that you've been in prison, and he's down in Florida, and he's in Miami, and I'm setting down shop there. So you go down to Florida, and you be my eyes and ears, and you run everything for me, especially the rum business, which is kind of the new money-making operation because of its prohibition is going on at the time. Um now, when you went into this movie and you kind of knew the town and Gone Baby Gone, did you expect this movie to take place entirely in Boston? Yeah, yeah. Just another example. I totally did. I thought, oh, it's another Boston crime film. This this time it's a period piece. And uh, so when he ships off to Florida, again, I was like, oh, didn't see that coming. Yeah, and I remember like the, like the first time I saw it, and of course I saw it in its release in December, so it was kind of is wintry out. And he gets to Florida, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, I wish I was in Florida right now. Anything <laughs> tropical right now would be much better than this, the weather I'm dealing with on, uh, in New York right now. Um, and we get introduced, well, we're reintroduced, really, he was in early scenes, but it's Dion, I think that's his, how you pronounce his name, right? It was Joe's Yeah, it's, it's Dion, and uh, I got to give a call out to the, the actor is Chris Messina, and number one, Chris Messina is a good-looking guy, and he makes himself so disgusting in this movie. Like, yeah, he's schlubby. He's, he's schlubby and messy and chubby, and he's got like these big, ugly teeth, and he's just a mess. He's almost unrecognizable because if you if you look at him how he looks in real life, it just doesn't look like that. But I want to give a call out is like he's for me he's one of the MVPs of this movie. I think he's so great as Dion, like. You immediately like him. He's the he's a great number two to uh, to Joe. He's a great character. He's a great best friend, um, and I love him throughout the film. But one of my complaints about the film is that even though he's there in the beginning, he is there when that first heist takes place and when that heist goes bad. You never really meet him. No, he's just he's just kind of there. There's no great intro for the character. So. When Joe meets him at the train station in Tampa, that feels like the first time you're meeting him and you didn't even realize that he was in those earlier scenes. So it's one of my two big complaints of the movie because otherwise I love the film. But one of my complaints is that I feel like they should have set Dion up at the beginning. So this way, when he meets back up with Joe in Tampa, it means something. We see that we see how these guys are old friends and how they've been through stuff together already in the past because you would, you wouldn't even know he was in that heist because they don't do anything to shift your focus to him. No, I mean like, sure he's in there, but he's never given a big close up. There's never a big interaction between Joe and him. Right. So you so like, like the sense of camaraderie they have when Joe's getting off the train and saying hello to each other. It's like, Oh, I guess they're old friends. We don't see the fact that they're old friends at this point. Yeah, I mean, they have an immediate chemistry, you know, They have, and, and you feel that, and you're like, oh, okay, old friends. But the first time I saw it, I, I was like, oh, okay, this is a new character. And then when I went and saw it again, I was like, 
No, he was at the beginning. They just didn't do anything to make us notice him at the beginning. Yeah, and I agree with you that like that's something they should have should have underlined like hey, these guys are friends, they're crew, and so of course like, I think we would all enjoy that moment together. And so as they meet up, they go down and they run into uh they muscle out the original guy who was running the operation. Uh, play. Uh, what was it? I forget the guy's name. Who was in Breakfast Club and Anthony Club. Michael Hall. Thank you. Yeah, and again, much like much like Clark Gregg, Anthony Michael Hall gets this one scene, but he's great in it. And so I do love the way that Affleck, even though some of these characters only have one scene, he hires really good actors to make these scenes. You know, to help elevate the scene, and it's a great it's a great shakedown between Joe and Dion. And Anthony Michael Hall's character. Um, it's really awesome. I love it. And because you never, like, because he's doing, because he's obviously from the South, so he has a little bit of a Southern accent. And you, I don't think I've ever seen him with a Southern accent before. And, like, immediately registering how Anthony Michael Hall is in other media, you're like, all right, this is interesting. This is, he's bringing a little bit of a different performance to the movie. And you're kind of like, all right, I can't wait to see what this character does. And it's just, unfortunately, like Clark Gregg, only in one scene. Right. But one thing I love about that that scene is how Joe is just like, listen, you know, if you want to, we can do it the hard way and I can bang your head against the wall, you know, or, or bounce your head off the, f- the floor like a bowling ball. If you want to do it that way, we can do it. But we're, no matter how we do it, you're leaving town tonight. So do it the easy way or the hard way. I just thought that was cool because a lot of times in gangster movies, you know, it's always the hard way, but I, I kind of liked the uh, how pragmatic Joe was about it, about like, listen, I'm giving you the chance. You either just take my word for it and get the hell out of town, or I'm going to beat the shit out of you and you're going to get out of town. Either way, you're leaving. Yeah, and I, I like the kind of playful nature that him and Dion have going into the meeting, as well as the meeting. They're kind of just like very nonchalant. And then after the meeting, because he's saying like, yeah, I know you, I marked the the booze bottles. I know you've been uh, skimping out on it and saying that these uh, shipments are actually losing, but like, no, you're just selling them Albert white. And Dion's like, when'd you mark the bottles? Like, like dumbass. I've been with you the entire time. Do you see me mark any bottles? <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, no, I knew you were lying. I just want to see how far you were willing to go with it. And, I, and then it's, it's that first, that moment, like that after they're seen them shaking down anything might go ahead. And they're like, you see that kind of relationship and that friendship they have. And you see in that moment, those kind of moments pop out throughout the rest of the movie. And I kind of wish like Dion was like in almost every scene after that. And cause like, that's why I wanted the movie to be just like a buddy picture during this, uh, gangster movie. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like the, the relationship between, uh, Ben Affleck and Chris Messina and how they make that friendship feel real. Um, in the movie, I think is, is one of the huge strong points of it. You, you, you fall in love with Dion and, uh, and, and you love that friendship. Yeah. And so after that, like Dion shows him a little bit more of the town. Huh, I didn't even mean to make it sound like that. Showing more <laughs> of the uh, city that they're in. Uh, and we get to see the tunnels that they, a lot of the speakeasies are using and they were introduced to, uh, Cubans and one of them being Graciela played by Zoe Saldana. And that's when the first inclination where Joe is recognizing and perking up around a woman the first time since Emma. So it's like, all right, do you, we kind of figure like, all right, 
Zoe Saldana and Ben Affleck in the movie, of course, they're going to probably end up in a relationship at this point. We're just, like, curious to see how it happens. And what did you think of that first scene of them meeting the Cubans and then saying, like, why we should be doing business with you, why you should be doing business with us versus Albert White? Well, I think it's great. I mean, it definitely sets up kind of the situation in, like I said, I think they're in Tampa. I believe so still, yeah. Yeah, or, or Ebor, Ebor City or something, which is part of Tampa uh, or, or next to Tampa. But yeah, like, I mean, it just sets up kind of the the landscape of, of how crime is being run and how Joe is coming in and, you know, making the new deal, making it clear that he's the guy now, he's the one you, you deal with, and at the same time uh, trying to cut Albert White out of the deal. It shows that he's savvy, it shows that he's smart, but... It also shows a lot about his character in that, much like the scene prior with Anthony Michael Hall, and in this scene, um, he tries to avoid violence if at all possible because he's – even though he's a gangster, even though he's a criminal, he he doesn't seem to like that side of being a criminal. So he always tries to avoid violence if at all possible. Versus Dion who like if violence is necessary, he'll immediately jump to that. And I think that's a like, nice dichotomy between the two of them where – if violence is necessary, yeah, they'll do it, but it's not the first option they'll go with. And it's another characteristic that plays throughout the rest of the movie and kind of a lot of big uh, story-making decisions are based upon that idea of not wanting to be violent right out of the gate. Well, yeah, and it, I mean, it sets up, it's frankly Joe's weakness, and that's what ends up you know, coming back to bite him later on in the film, is that, yes, he's a criminal, but he's but he's not a cold hearted criminal. He is not a murderer and he will try to avoid that if at all possible. And he makes some decisions later on in the film where he spares certain people. And uh, that's what ends up kind of leading to his downfall is that, you know, and I mean, and that's a huge, a huge theme in the whole film later on in the film. Uh, Graciela even says, I'm not sure if you're cruel enough for this business. And cause he keeps trying to be a criminal without being cruel without being heartless and without you know just killing people uh haphazardly and because of that you know he is not as successful as a criminal as probably uh pescatore wants him to be um which which ends up becoming a problem so i mean that that's one of the big themes is is how far will you sell your soul uh and he won't sell it enough and so it ends up you know it ends up coming back to bite him oh totally and and that's like one of the things I want to talk about is that, is that scene, like we'll we'll jump to that right now. I don't know if you're cruel enough. And later on, Graciela says like I don't know the person you're changing into. Do you think he's going down that path that he's he's descending to becoming that kind of criminal? Um, I mean, well, I mean, he he, he doesn't he doesn't have the issue with with killing if he absolutely has to, but it's always someone who quote unquote deserves it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are just certain lines that he won't cross. And so, yeah, like she knew, she knew what she was getting involved with. And I think that that always concerned her. And when she sees him make some of those tougher decisions, um, you know, she does worry. She's like, you know, is, is this still the man that, that I fell in love with? Mm-hmm. And we get to see this kind of decisions uh, being played out later on. But to jump back a little bit, 
we're introduced to the chief and his daughter because the, the Dion and Joe need to talk to the chief to show what we're going to be doing, the legal stuff we're going to be doing in your town, and just pretty much to get permission from the chief to where they can operate without any problems. As And the chief is played by Chris Cooper and the daughter is played by Ella Fanning. And much like Brendan Gleeson, I can watch Chris Cooper act in anything. Yeah, he's always great. And I'm waiting for the like I, I I'm calling now. Elephanting's winning an Oscar one day. Mm-hmm. And and I'm just and I love like the introduction to that scene where Dion and Joe get there, and Dion's just going to looking at all the photos that the chief has on his desk, and Joe's like, "What's wrong with you?" And he's like, "What? Like, what do you think this guy's gonna do? He's gonna walk in with a criminal just ruffling through his photos on his desk." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It, it, that was such an interesting idea is the fact that the uh, the new crime boss in town takes a meeting with the chief of police just to be like, hey, I'm the guy now. Uh, let's, uh, you know, let's not fight. So and, and and it is a great scene because it shows like the reality of the situation, especially during prohibition, because, you know, everybody, you know, prohibition historically was a was a huge failure. Um, and so but but I loved how, you know, Chris Cooper was very realistic about the situation but he even says something and i you know it's been a little while since i've seen the movie i didn't i I wasn't able to watch it before this but uh he says something about like just because you know just because i i you know i i i'm having these conversations with you don't make the mistake of thinking i'm corrupt or you know i'm paraphrasing but it's something to that effect yeah and because his Morality is a big part of his characteristic, and his morality comes into play later on when it's dealing with other characters. And Joe and Joe and Dion kind of respect that, like, yeah, of course, like you won't have to be involved with it. Like we'll stay within our designated area that you sanction. So he's like, mm-hmm. all right, like no problem. And he introduced to his daughter, and he's like, oh, she's going out to Hollywood. She's going to be a movie star, and it's kind of like a. As obviously it seems the setup to be paid off later. Um, so after that, we get to see Joe kind of flourish for the first time in in Tampa, and he starts a relationship with Graciela. And everything seems to be going fine. Everything seems to be on the up and up, and so much so that him and his gang are having a party out in out in the out in like the kind of I want to I want to say like it's kind of like in the the, the marshland of Florida. And everybody's having a good time. And what root, what kills a party faster? The clan showing up. Yeah, because yeah, because uh, Joe is um, is working with these the the Cubans, uh, and uh, you know many of them are black. And so yeah, the the clan does not like that he is playing nice with uh, with the blacks in the area. And so yeah, they they show up. Yeah, and it was something that like that caught me off guard is because everything's going fine and and like Joe sees something off screen and he walks towards it. And we don't know what it is. He opens the door and it's just a burning cross. Much like you said, like you don't know where this movie's going. I, that was like the last thing I was expecting him to see outside the door. I was waiting. I thought it was just gonna be the cops and it was gonna be a raid. Did not expect the Ku Klux Klan to be standing out there. Yeah, yeah, it it it, it was unexpected. And so that's and again, that's kind of to speak to the the novel nature of the story is that that so much happens and and you go through such a journey because, you know, it's it starts with, you know, him as a two bit thief. And then 
almost getting killed and his girlfriend getting killed. And then all of a sudden he's, he, he's the new head of organized crime and prohibition in Tampa. And now all of a sudden the clan is involved. So there's just a lot going on. Um, and it continues like that through the entire story. There's, there's just so much in the movie. Oh yeah. And so, and we get to see this kind of little montage of this one clans member that has RD Pruitt, who has a particular hatred for, the operations going on Tampa, and he starts raiding all the places that Joe is set up in. So, and we find out that he's the brother-in-law. His brother-in-law is actually the chief of police. So Joe goes to the chief, say, "Hey, can we have a sit down?" And so nothing gets out of hand. So R.D. Pruitt shows up, and it's funny. I, I forget the actor's name, but he's been in a bunch of Ben Affleck movies beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was in Jersey Girl, the Kevin Smith movie, and I remember he has a really humorous scene where Ben Affleck's like the first time he's changing the diaper of his daughter, and I think he's a bike messenger, and he's like, like, no, you're supposed to do this for the baby, and that's how you're supposed to clean it, and like, really? Like, yeah, you do it that way, you give the the baby the crotch rot, mark my words, and walks out of the frame, and I'm like, that's a very strange character to have there, but all right, I'll go (laughs) with it. And I think he showed up in either town or Argo. I'm not too sure which after that. And of course he shows up here. And so Joe says like, all right, what can we do to make this right? What can I do to, so he pretty much says like, you want a piece of the action of what I'm doing as long as you leave my club alone. And yeah, basically he's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to kill the brother-in-law of the chief of police, but He's, you know, but I can't let him keep doing what he's doing, you know, busting up my clubs, blowing them up, shooting people. So I will offer him, you know, I will offer him a peace settlement. He's got to do nothing and he gets money. Um, and this is his plan. I want to say, though, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I have I have two nitpicks with the movie. The first nitpick was that I feel like Dion could have should have been introduced stronger earlier in the film. My other nitpick is that I feel like Artie Pruitt and this whole situation comes out of nowhere. Uh, and I just feel like there, there, there had to have been a more smooth transition into this part of the story. Cause I feel like, you know, there's this montage of, of uh, Joe's success, you know, selling rum in Tampa and he's the new big man on campus and all that. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, this guy bursts in and just starts shooting stuff up and you're like, Whoa, wait, what the hell's going on? And it wasn't like intentionally surprising. It just feels jarring. And I think it could have been as simple as just tweaking the, uh, the voiceover of him, of him just saying, Oh, you know, we're now, you know, we're now the biggest rum game in town. Things are going great. And and then he just has all he has to say is something like, but when you're on top, there's always somebody who wants to bring you down. And then it goes right into it, and then it would make sense. I just feel like there's so much in the movie and it's cut so tightly. For the most part, I think it's done extremely well. I think you get everything you need. But there are just those couple instances where I feel like it's cut a little too tightly and a, and a little scene of transition would have helped. Yeah, and like rumor has it that the initial cut was roughly three hours in length and it was more of a character piece, but Warner Brothers insisted for a quicker, a faster cut of the movie. So that's why it was cut down to two hours. Do you think, let's say for argument's sake that it was true, do you think that was probably a victim of that kind of, of the cuts uh, that, that Warner Brothers insisted on? It could have been, but I mean, like I said, I saw it 
six months at least before it came out and it was not three hours long. So I don't know how, I don't know if that's true or not, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think to his credit, Ben Affleck cut an, an extremely efficient film that tells a heck of a lot of story in a really uh, impressive short amount of time in two hours and whatever it is, two hours and six minutes or something or yeah. um, two hours and nine minutes. So like to get this much content into a two hour and nine minute movie, I think is really impressive. And for the most part, it works. There are just a couple of these instances where, where it suffers for it, where, where I'm like, ah, oh, you just needed maybe another moment to breathe here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I wouldn't put, I mean, with Batman v Superman Suicide Squad having cut issues and very publicly cut issues, it wouldn't surprise audiences if that was the case, if that was true. I'm not saying it is. If it was, I don't think anybody would be surprised. Right. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's possible, but I have no idea. All, you know, again, for, for me, I I had no issue with the uh, – I prefer a efficient storytelling film to a really prolonged and, and long and boring one. So I think it was – you know, I think it's okay. I think, I think the film still turned out great with the, with just the two little exceptions. Yeah. I mean – there are certain gangster movies or certain movies in general that benefit from a longer length. I mean, one of the ones I think, even if it is a bit long, I think Once Upon a Time in America, I enjoy the length of that movie. Sure, I have to give dedicate pretty much an entire day to watch it, but I think that story works for that. Or you think of Watchmen, The Ultimate Cut, or any other extremely long movie or like the Lord of the Rings extended cuts. I mean, I don't watch the theatrical cuts now that I watch the extended cuts of Lord of the Rings, because I think that's just my, that's the preference I have for that story. But getting back to live by night. Um, th- there's one question I always had with this scene. Do you think the chief should have done more during this meeting to, to change the mind of his brother-in-law? Well, he's just, he's just in a tough spot. And, and, he, I mean, he's already essentially taking Joe's side. <laughs> so yeah, by having the meeting in the first place. Yeah. And, and he even says, you know, this man here is trying to do business, you know, work with him. So he's already doing what he can. And when the meeting's over, they think it's been successful. So, you know, I think that he, he does what he can at, at this point, and he, he thinks that, you know, everybody thinks that the situation is uh, is resolved, and then, of course, it's not. No, because they agree on 15% cut on all of his businesses, and you just have to pick it up second Tuesday of every month, no problem. And mm-hmm. so then R.D. Prude, he's like, oh, fine, we'll, we'll go with that. And then it cuts to later on, and he's like, he starts showing up at Joe's clubs and like throwing pipe bombs and shooting up the place and leaving notes saying 60%. Mm-hmm. And he's like, uh, and it's, it happens at like one of the worst times for Joe, because at the same time, Joe has the foresight saying prohibition is not going to last. So he starts building this casino and this becomes his, his calling card or his, his, like his big pet project is like, all right, this casino is going to be my legacy. Even though gambling is not legal in Florida, I am working my damnedest to make sure gambling is going to be legal in Florida. Mm-hmm. 
And at this point, we're introduced to Digger, the or the, the character is called Digger, the prescatory son. And they kind of like, Dion kind of says like, he's kind of a moron. And we see in the very first scene, yeah, he's he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. Yeah, he's 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 a cocky uh, little shit, but not super bright. No, and like Joe is just being extremely patient with him because he he realizes like this is the boss's son. I have to be nice to him. Right, he's got no choice but to deal with this guy. But this guy is a nightmare. He's as he's as awful as you would imagine. And uh, and you're right there with Joe, where you just God, you're just like, oh, I hate this guy. Yeah, and then like he walks off, and he, like Joe leans into the end, like, is this fucking guy for real? Like, I have to deal with this. I got, yeah. I got, I, I mean, I got the clan on one side of me. I'm trying to get this casino man. Now I got to deal with uh, Ernest here, as, as supposed to be. I'm supposed to report to him. Like, jeez. And so the Artie's um, attacks become so out there and so happen so often that Joe goes to the chief again and he kind of muscles the chief to sell out his brother-in-law and the chief's like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's when Joe reveals something about Loretta, the chief. So what happens with that? Yeah, it's one of it's one of the roughest sequences because up until now, Joe and the chief have had this mutual respect uh, as, as much as the chief of police and the, and the crime boss can have. And, uh, but because of because of Artie Pruitt, you know he's he's really stuck in this tough spot where he's he's got to do something about Pruitt. And you're with him, like as an audience member, you're watching and you're like, yeah, we need to take this guy out. He's a nightmare. He's he's horrible. Um, it's easy to root against the clan, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, this is, not, and, birth, this is uh, not the birth of a nation, so we're not siding, the original birth of a nation. We're not siding with the clan in this movie. Right. Right. So. Uh, so yeah, he's he's like, it's tough because the chief is like, I I'm, I can't give him, I can't give up my wife's brother so you can kill him, but at the same time, Joe's like, well, he won't stop shooting up my people and blowing up my clubs, I gotta kill him, and so they're 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 at odds, and and unfortunately, this is when Joe has to do one of those things, he has to compromise him himself. Uh, and and use the leverage he has to to get what he needs at this point. Yeah, and the leverage is that Loretta, the chief's daughter, didn't end up becoming an actress in Hollywood. That she actually became a prostitute and addicted to heroin, and that photos were taken. Possibly, maybe, maybe pornographic movies were made while she was out there, but. Joe has gotten like a hold of her and she's cleaning her up and everything. And Joe threatens to release this information to everybody. If he doesn't sell out his, if the chief does not sell out his brother-in-law and I love well, he, he never offers to, he never says he's going to release it, but basically he says, here's what she's been doing. We have her. She's fine, but you don't get to know where she is until you give me Pruitt. Oh, right. My mistake there. I, I always assumed that he was going to, tell people about that as well and i think that would have been the public shame would have hurt him just as much of his daughter actually being in danger yeah but it was basically you know just showing a father those type of photos of his daughter you know was was heartbreaking for him yeah 
and it has that um, moment where the chief goes inside the house and gets on the phone, and the camera just lingers on Joe, and it just you just see you have that moment with him, and you're like, he realizes like, oh, I really did not want to do that, and you, and you sympathize him with that moment. Yeah, because he even when he realizes he's going to have to do it, you know, he he again he gives the chief a chance, you know, just just like earlier, you know, he's like, we can do it the easy way or the hard way, and the chief picks the hard way, and he's like, oh, I I don't want to do this, and he goes, do what? And he goes what you're making me do. And that's when he, he throws out the, the pictures and, and you know, he, he doesn't want to do it either, but at this point he feels like he has no choice. Yeah. And so the chief gives out his brother-in-law and he says, we're a relationship. Like we're pretty much done. I'm breaking up with you, Joe. We, we can't go back to the way we were. Right. Uh, <laughs> There's uh, no going back. Exactly. And he's like, you don't refer to me by my first name. You refer to me by the chief. And he's like, all right, fine. And so the meeting is set up outside the outskirts of the the half-built casino where R.D. and a few of his clan buddies show up with, and Joe's there to make an offer. And R.D.'s like, not playing ball. He wants everything. He wants 100% of the take at this point. Being completely unreasonable. Mm-hmm. As, as he is. Yeah. And he threatens, he says, like, do you th- really think that you and you people are going to get gambling legalized in a Florida. And because like we cleanse people, we have, we have members in all parts of the government here. And I doubt it's going to happen. And Joe's like, all right, fine. And he pulls his gun, shoots uh, RD and Joe's back up hiding within the skeleton of the building comes out with, with Tommy guns and mows down the rest of the people. And I feel like there was a really funny beat here, and I think they could have played up a little bit more if Joe was hurt, because it turns out that Dion winged, uh, uh, well, didn't wing, he shot, he shot Joe in the stomach accidentally while he was strafing all the, the clans members that were in front of him. Yeah. And I feel like it was a funny moment, but I feel like if it was more visibly painful, like Joe was in a lot of pain with it, I think that would have been funnier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, it's still a great little humorous moment at the end of this very intense scene. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, I just think back at that moment, um, in Reservoir Dogs where Tim Roth is shot in the stomach and Harvey Keitel is trying his damnedest to calm him down. And it's kind of unintentionally funny, the antics that he's willing to go. But so after that, it's a full-on war between Joe's men and the clan. We see a montage of them killing off members. And we get this really tense scene where they go to a cigar-making factory to talk with a member. And I love this moment because he's saying, like, oh, my, my friends, the people I report to are not going to uh, abide this. And he's like, so you're not the hot top dog here? No. Then why the hell am I talking to you? And so... Dion pulls a gun and, and caps him right there in front of everybody. And I just thought yeah. like, like, Whoa, I was not expecting that. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great moment. Cause exactly. You it's, it's different than what you've seen happen in the past in the rest of the film. So yeah, the fact that uh, it's the clan and uh, they're not cooperating and he's like, listen, we got all these people who, uh, you know, we got all this power. We don't have to listen to you. And he's like, Oh, there's, there's people more, uh, more more powerful than you, then why the you know why the hell am I talking to you? And just they just take him out immediately. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, and um, 
And so at the same time, the clan eventually backs off once so many of their members have been taken out by Joe's gang during this war. And so everything seems to be going well. And Joe and Graciela get married. And, and I think I really like this moment because Ben Affleck and Zoe, Zoe Saldana have such great chemistry together. And I think this, and I, I like the fact that they're to, they end up being together in this movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I mean, of course they're great actors. Of course they're gonna have chemistry. But even great actors you see in movies where they're supposed to be very lovey dovey, and you're like, that does not seem genuine to me. Right. And um, at the same time, Loretta comes back, and she goes back to her father, and who. Punish her, punishes her for what she's done over and out in Cal, out in California, and I don't say it becomes like a born again Christian, but it's like kind of finds her finds a new identity in faith and starts preaching to people. What do you think of this development and her, her character at this point? Oh, was, I mean, it's interesting. Again, it's not it wasn't really expected, um, but yeah, I mean, they do play a lot with the. Ah, the like religious zealotry uh, and uh, especially with with Chris Cooper's chief character of how he he continuously punishes his daughter for what she's done. So it's this weird thing where he loves her. He's happy to have her back, but yet he continues to punish her for uh, for her sins. And so she feels maybe that the only way that she can atone for them is to dedicate her life to religion now. Yeah. And. And she becomes very successful and becomes a huge draw for people to go see. Wow. Um, I realize sometimes, like, my Long Island accent comes through sometimes with certain words I pronounce. And I always forget the word draw. I have a really heavy accent with it. So I apologize that people. I'm like, like, oh, that's such a Long Island thing to say. Apologize, people. Sorry. (laughs) Um, And so Joe and Dion go to see her because during her sermons and everything that she's saying like a casino would just be the epitome of sin brought upon the people of Florida. And everybody's like, yeah, she's right. We shouldn't have a casino. And so Joe and Dion go to reason with her. And I love this moment because everything starts out like most conversations, everything starts out very cordial and immediately escalates rather quickly. And even Joe was taken aback, like how quickly uh, Loretta turns the tables on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, he's trying to do it so that nobody gets hurt. You know, like he knows that Loretta is standing in the way of, of what he needs to do, which is this casino. And so he's like, I need to go, you know, I need to get her to stop speaking out against it. And she refuses to. So it's just a, a, one of those tough situations where it's like, ah, uh, he's like, she's been through enough. I don't want, you know, I don't want to make her life harder, but I can't let her keep doing what she's doing. Yeah. And I, something I noticed with the scene production wise, because um, movie was photographed by Robert Richardson, who is like a world class cinematographer. He's worked with Olive Stone. He's worked with Quentin Tarantino. He's worked with Martin Scorsese. And he's ph- photographed this. And a lot of this movie is obviously is presented in widescreen. It was shot. Uh, again, real technical here, like the Arri Alexa 65, like their big format camera from Arri with 70 millimeter lenses as like the format they're photographing on. And a lot of the movies showed in wide shots and 
and there's a the great big view of, even when during a close up and it's in this scene we get the first like extreme close up on the face between Loretta and Joe and you realize and I like that that there was restraint on the production side that we do not cut to a huge close up unless it's really necessary and I think that really sells point it's like that that point of that scene where well if God changes that uh changes the Bible tomorrow saying that a casino is fine then i'll be i'll be with it but until then i can't help you mm-hmm. and so dion's like we're gonna have to kill her and joe's like no we're not gonna kill her and this is a question i have i know that we will get to how what happens to loretta later on but do you think joe should have done what dion said do you think they should have killed her initially it's and uh, you know and that's that's exactly the tough question that the movie is asking which is like she hasn't technically done anything wrong she she is not guilty and so uh as you know as the crime boss this is one of those tough calls that you have to make is to kill someone who it, hasn't technically done anything wrong because they're in your way and most crime bosses would Joe wouldn't. And this is, you know, eventually again, what, what comes back to bite him is like, he can't bring himself to kill someone who has not wronged him. Um, and even she's inadvertently wronging him, but, but, you know, in, in as, uh, malice free a way as possible. So, so yeah, I mean, this is Joe's weakness as a, as a crime boss. Uh, should she, should he have, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I tend to side with him. I don't think I could do it. So, (laughs) Yeah, um, I think for his career, yeah, he probably should have because right. it becomes a, it becomes a big problem. Um, but you understand like the how what a tough call this is. Yeah, and you want him to succeed, and but like, but putting him within the context of what's happened with Loretta up until this point, you're like, you're just you're torn, like just like Joe, you're torn between like you want him to be successful, but also. Can you live with yourself if you made that kind of decision? Right. And and so everything is confounded with because Prohibition ends and the casino development is pretty much put on the back burner and most likely will never start up again. And well, there's that, that we- great there's that great scene where the um the investor pulls out and Joe loses it and he gives this great speech about you know you you people uh you've been you've you've been keeping the you know you've been keeping like the lower classes down for so long one of these days they're gonna they're gonna rise up and you're not gonna know what hits you and he gives this great speech and uh when he when he gives that speech in the theater like the whole theater started applauding it was a very timely speech about the have-nots or uh the the people in society who are underserved by the you know the rich and powerful it's it's a great scene and it's a great speech by affleck yeah and uh, it's as most people like are you're like you've been in that situation where you've been knocked down and kind of underappreciated by those in in power and you're like it's one of those it's a rallying moment for the audience as obviously as you said the whole audience cheered after that mm-hmm. and um after that scene we get another 
uh, scene between Joe and Loretta, and this is like the diner scene. This is how all this podcast came about. It was this conversation you and I initially had about this scene specifically. Yeah, and I don't even remember what I said, to be honest with you. But but yes, I, I, I adore this scene. This scene uh, became, you know, after three viewings, it, it became my favorite scene in the whole film. I think it's extremely well acted, extremely well written, and very powerful. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think this is probably my favorite scene as well. And the scene is that Joe and Loretta meet each other in a diner, and they start talking about what where they are in life. And Loretta feels guilty that the casino is no longer a viable option for him. And she does feel kind of slightly responsible for um, dashing those kind of that potential for him. And Joe's like, you know what? I understand you have your principles and so do I. So I'm not going to be besmirched you for that. So, and they start talking about the kind of feelings that, that Loretta was having a cry of, crisis in faith at this point where she doesn't know if she could truly be considered a good Christian at this point at the, because the actions of her father, that her father's just walking around the house all the time, mumbling to himself, saying the word repent over and over. And he didn't do that before. So she assumes that it's because of her actions that he's doing that because of her. Mm-hmm. And they start questioning to, and like the, 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 the line of the scene and that and it almost becomes like the line in the movie is that that this is heaven and we've just we've fucked it up as she says mm-hmm. and this is we were given paradise and we screwed it up because that's in our nature mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's what is so is so powerful about this scene is you know there's here's this this character who's you know been to hell and back and she's now dedicated her life to religion and she she i guess because she's with someone like joe she feels that she feels open to just to speak very honestly and she even says she goes i i don't know if there's a god but i hope there is and i hope he's kind and it's like it's heartbreaking because she's dedicated to her whole life to something that she's not even sure she believes in and all she can do is hope and that's what then leads to to the sentiment of, you know what, like, this is heaven. This is heaven now because this is what we're guaranteed. This is what we know we have. And all we can do is make the best of what what this is, but we still screwed it up because, you know, we're just imperfect people. And uh, it is, it's just a beautiful scene, but also just heartbreaking. Yeah, and like, you had, like I said before, it's my favorite scene in the movie because – and you just wish that conversation could go on for another 10 minutes because it's just like, ah, oh, because they're both acting their butts off in this scene mm-hmm. and you enjoy the camaraderie they have. And they're they, because they they're not they're obviously on opposite ends of like, I guess you could say a moral spectrum, but they're not judging each other like how everybody else does in this movie. And like, yeah, like you're a criminal and I'm a preacher pretty much. And it's like. So, and we're just having a conversation. We're not judging each other. And I really enjoy that moment. And it, it, I think I, it's the more, the real, the power of that scene is what happens next, where we find out off screen Loretta kills herself. Yeah. And you're like, and you immediately feel bad for Joe because 
he feels slightly responsible for during that previous conversation that maybe he led her to make that kind of decision. And you're just like, ah, oh. and Dion, like he makes that, he makes that kind of snide remark. It was like, why couldn't you do that? While prohibition was still going on before the casino was, was, was putting the kibosh on you're like, Oh, come on. Like, I'm all yeah. for gallus humor, but like, that was, that was in poor taste there guy. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but that's just his character. He would make that joke. And so we're kind of like wrapping up near so it's like we're like ramping up the third act here and we find out that Emma is still alive that Graciela's brother who's a photographer on his side like that's what he does is like a hobby and he took a photo in Miami and Emma was in the background at the same time Prescatory comes to visit and demands a meeting with Joe and he's saying and Dion's like he's bringing all of his guns with him now going into this this will ends up being the third act climax. What'd you expect this was going to happen? What would you expect to happen? Well, I mean, I've seen enough gangster movies where I'm like, yeah, you know, this, this, this is not going to go well for Joe, but I didn't know how it would play out. I honestly had no idea. Um, but, but yes, like they even said, you know, all the signs are bad. This does not, this does not look good. Uh, and so, of course, you know, you're still you're still rooting for Joe. And but I yeah, I didn't I didn't really necessarily know how where it was going. Uh, and I tend to not try to guess. But uh, but this is where, you know, it's very tense because you're like, oh, my God, like, is there getting out of this for him? Yeah. You didn't know if he was going to run. Was he going to actually face him or whatnot? He didn't know how he's going to proceed. And so Joe says, like, all right. We'll meet him. So they go and they meet him in this like hotel that like every room has been rented out by Prescatory's men. So you know he's got a small army with him at this point. And meets with him and he's like and Prescatory's like like you should have killed the woman. So we have had the casino. You're not you're not a killer. You're not really a gangster. You're a bandit in a, in a nice suit and you're gonna hand everything over to my son, Digger. And you just and like Joe's trying to keep his composure the the best way the with every fiber of his body at that point. He's trying to be as as respectful as possible. And you just see the kind of like unhinging, just like you know what, like like I I just can't deal with this this BS anymore. Mm-hmm. And then we're finally revealed that Albert White has actually been doing business with Prescatory, and they made a deal, and so we're finally get to see albert white since the beatdown that he gave joe years prior and he's like you know what if you kill me you're never gonna find her and he shows the picture that emma is still alive and albert white's like no that's that's you just doctored this photo up this is this is bs and at that moment that's when the tables really turn on the gang is that a gunfight ensues uh, breaks out and he's wondering like wait where's all these guys coming from how do you think we do over our bootlegging we have all the tunnels, and so all we see a few shots of men entering the hotel from the basement and start taking out these uh, uh, Prescatory's men. This is where I think my biggest criticism of this movie comes from. Because you can't tell who's who in this scene. You can't tell one gang from the other. Mm-hmm. You just see men firing at each other, and... 
and it's like you can't tell who's winning and he like there's like there's no tension you just see guys shooting at each other like i i kind of think of it like that's like an old james bond movie like you have like those big climactic battles inside the bad guys base and you'd have one group dressed in one set of uniforms and bond's group dressed in another set of uniforms so you know who's who on the battle so you're like all right that's a good guy getting killed that's a bad guy getting killed i wish there was kind of a way to make the joe's guys a little more distinct that's interesting i honestly did not have that problem i i was pretty clear on who was who that's fair i mean because his men like kind of wipe the floor with uh Prescatory's men Prescatory kills albert white gunfight ensues around the hotel and Prescatory doubles backs to the initial room that they're in and it is kind of like a joke i kind of made um as if you look at like Ben Affleck's like schedule for 2016, like 2015 into 2016, like you could tell the man was very busy. He came off a of Gone Girl. He prepped, uh, uh, Live by Night. He shot Batman v Superman. He shot this and he shot the accountant. They all came out relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the scenes, like him, he's hit him sitting in chairs, like to the point, like in the movie theater, I'm like, it shouldn't be called Live by Night. It should be called Live by Chairs because a lot of the scenes is just him sitting down. And so I'm like, I wonder if that was a conscious decision. Like, I'm not going to do any really extensive blocking here. I'm going to relax as much as possible while making this movie. <laughs> I I didn't even notice, but all right. I mean, I, I, I mean, the poster is him sitting in a chair, so. Yeah, and, and it's a great image, and that's most appropriate for there in that moment because you can tell he is all the power in the world in that moment because he's like, the other guy is standing up, but like, you know what? I'm the one in control here. It's just like how many scenes of him are just sitting in chairs. Like he goes to see Anthony Michael Hall sitting in a chair. He deals with the clans member that he guns down, like sitting in a chair. It's just because maybe it's just, I guess that's just the filmmaker me and I, and I appreciate that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just appreciate really good blocking. Like you think of, you look at like a person like Steven Spielberg, like there's so many people moving in every shot that he's in. And it's rare that the camera's not moving or a character's not moving because that's why I think his movie has so much, his moves have so much energy mm-hmm. over like a Sidney Lumet movie where there's characters always moving in his, his, his uh, movies because he came from a theater background. So blocking is such a, an essential part of his movie making. But that's just me being a film nerd there. No, that's funny. I I didn't notice, but uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe he was just like, "Ah, it's been a long year. I'm going to (laughs) sit. I will say that I I do love the fact that he was able to get the upper hand on uh, Pescatori and Albert White because he knew the city. It was his city. And I just think that there's some some poetic justice there, that that was what allowed him to – to win here is that they came to his city and tried to take it, but it because it's his city – he knew exactly how to t- how to turn that to his advantage. Oh yeah, and I love that moment when they both realize, like, oh, both Prescatory and White realize, oh shit, we really screwed up here. And Joe has that kind of smug look on his face. Well, and, and Joe even says something. He's like, "We had a good thing going here, and you messed it up." Yeah, and like you're like you didn't have to do anything. You made eleven million dollars last year in bootlegging, and you didn't have to do anything. We sent you the money in the mail, pretty much. Right. And and it's like and it goes back to what Loretta said earlier on, like we we just constantly just screw up everything in our own lives. Mm-hmm. And so it ends with 
Prescatory ex- uh, getting executed by Joe. Digger is dead. Albert White is dead. Everybody, like his, like the few men who surrendered on Prescatory's uh, behalf, like, um, like thinking they're going to get killed. Like, Joe's like, no. He pulls like a Tony Montana from Scarface. He's like, you want a job? Uh, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll work for you because they're not stupid. Yeah, and, I like, and I like that he says, you know, no one else has to die today. So if you want a job, you've got it. And he immediately hands it over to Dion, who's like kind of taken aback that he was given all that responsibility. And like he, he kind of like he's kind of feeling like, you know, like, wow, that's really remarkable that he trusts me with the entire operation. Mm-hmm. And going back to what you were saying before, that this is very film noir and so much voiceover. <laughs> In the voiceover, after he hands over the business to him, we find out that, and he says, like, I'm not going to live to see old age. And he doesn't. He died eight years later, presumably because of probably got taken out by another criminal. Yeah. Yeah. He said, oh, yeah, he, he, he ran the game for eight years, but he was right. He never saw old age. And so the movie kind of, like, gets to its epilogue here with Joan Graciela have a son. And they're living a life happily ever after. However, they don't get the chance to have a true happily ever after. Yeah. So it is funny because you think it's just it's just the epilogue. That's what you think. You're like, oh, okay, we're just going to see happily ever after. And uh, the problem is, is that these things come back to haunt you. And it's it's funny because it's set up very early in the movie where uh, when Joe has a conversation with his father and his father says something like about, oh, you know, the actions you take will always come back to you, just not when or how you expect. And so he calls it. He calls it at the very beginning of the movie. And so Joe has all these years of, of crime and and, you know, killing people or hurting people or pressuring people or whatever. Um, and you think that he's gotten away with it. You think that, you know, he's already paid whatever price he's going to pay, but no, his actions come back to haunt him in one of the most unexpected people of all. Yeah. Yeah. And the chief chief goes, goes, and the words, words, uh, uh, Norm Bates, Norm Bates goes along goes mad. mad. And shows up, shows up, shows house, house, revolver, revolver, screaming, screaming, at the top of his house, as long as it's just firing, firing, house, house. Joe, Joe, gets his family down to the floor, grabs his pistol, goes outside, and kills the chief. And he's like, woof, woof, well, that was close, close. And he goes back inside, his son's okay, but, but, Gracias was hit in the crossfire and was killed. And, and I was gutted at this scene. Like, oh, come on, man. You man, couldn't have just given him just a little bit. You couldn't you just, just, just send him off on the prairie? Like, if you had to take that away from him? Yeah, I know. It's it's a it's a, a heart-wrenching way for it to end. But again, it you know, it speaks to, to you have a good thing going, but your actions have consequences and, and you end up messing up for yourself. Yeah, and, and like and I love that like moment where he's like holding her, and I noticed it like earlier on in the wider shot where like the his son is playing with a toy truck, and on the toy truck it says Ritz, the name that what the casino was supposed to be if it was completed, and it pushes in on that, and you're like, ah, oh, geez, has that kind of reminder hanging around him, and so he brings Graciela's body back to Cuba and have her buried there, and the movie ends with. His son growing up, showing that he wants to be a cop. We find out that 
Joe's brother ends up becoming an actual screenwriter and wrote a Western that they went and saw. They hint that that Hitler is rising to power, but they're probably not going to go to another world war. And Joe comes to that moment, becomes that realization that this is heaven. This is what we got. And this is where we have to fight and protect. And this is what we need to enjoy. And that's how the movie ends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's the same thing. He says, he says it earlier in the film where he's like, Oh, there's no, you know, no need to kill us. There's no percentage in it. And then he says the same thing about world war two, where he's like, Oh, they're not going to have another world war. There's no percentage in it. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sort of logical sense to do this. Um, and yet somehow we, as people do it anyway. Um, which again, I think is, is, is one of the major themes of the film is, is how, uh, we don't always think logically and we don't always do things that make sense. And, and we end up screwing up our own personal heaven. And that final shot of him with his son, you know, is, uh, and they're, and they're walking on the water and it's a beautiful shot. You, you know, you mentioned the cinematography. It's gorgeous. The most, this movie is gorgeous. Um, with that final, you know, this is, this is heaven you know, we're in it now. And, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's a beautiful ending. Um, but very bittersweet. Yeah, and I think maybe it's because life is already full of other bittersweet moments. Life is full of bittersweet moments that you just hope for the best possible. But as we know, life isn't always like that, that you have to take the – that reality has kind of its shitty moments and you just got to live through it. And, like, that's like – I wasn't mad at the ending. I was just like, oh, I wish you just got away with it because, of course, you – we spent two hours with him. You want him to get away with it and have a happy ending because of all the stuff he's gone through to get to this point. Yeah, no, I mean, you do. And, and what sucks is that Graciela pays for his sins. Yeah. Which, which is even, you know, which is even rougher on him. Uh, you know, she's the one who was warning him of, of who he was becoming and she's the one who ends up paying for it. Right. All right. And so, going into a kind of like a final thoughts, like some ideas that I had that while watching this movie. Um, as we mentioned before that each one of Ben's previous movies was critically acclaimed leading up to this point. And this is the first one that the critics were kind of sour on. Do you think this reception was kind of inevitable if this was not a knock, if it was not a home run? You know, I, I think that, I don't know if inevitable is the right word, but I do think that that's part of what played against it is the fact that he had these three home runs in a row. So if this thing was anything less than perfection, it was a disappointment just by default because here's the thing. Like I love the movie. I love it. It, it might be my favorite of all of his films. It might be hard to tell, but it's great. I love it. Um, but I could understand people saying, oh, well, it's not as good as Argo. I could understand someone saying that, or it's not as good as The Town. Fair enough. But even if I can understand that, that doesn't mean it's not a well-made, well-written, well-acted, well-put-together and effective film on its own terms. So, you know, if you want to put this arbitrary, oh, it's not as good as Argo, fine, but to jump from that to it's a bad film doesn't make any sense to me because I can't imagine anyone watching this film and saying it's a bad film or it's badly made. Yeah. I mean, you see that in Hollywood and amongst critics from time and time again, like the two cases I always come back to is that you have Steven Spielberg, for example, 
has jaws, massive hit, critically mm-hmm. and commercially. He follows up with Close Encounters, another massive hit, critically and commercially. Then he does 1941. It falls on its face because it was not that good of a movie uh, compared to the other two. Spielberg knew it, and Pauline Kael, the famous uh, movie critic, said, like, we're waiting for you to fall on your face now. We're like, because there's no way you got by twice. We're not going to let you get by a third time. Mm-hmm. And then I think of James Cameron, because you think of, comes out with the Terminator, great hit, follows it up with Aliens, which is even a bigger hit financially and uh, financially, and then critically just acclaimed like Academy Awards nominations like for Sigourney Weaver and for special effects for that movie. Then he does The Abyss, where which that was a movie that was heavily cut for a theatrical movie, and it was not warmly received as his two previous movies. Mm-hmm. And I like I think it's not the sophomore slump, but I think I I just wonder if like filmmakers had that kind of anxiety, saying like, all right, things are like just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You just know, yeah. like, obviously you don't want to, you never go into a movie expecting to make a bad movie or it's going to be received poorly. Nobody goes out to make a bad movie unless you're Uwe Boll, but that's just him. <laughs> and so I just wonder if that was kind of, like, I wonder if filmmakers had that kind of anxiety going into, like, all right, I really need to knock it out of the park, otherwise I'm going to get crucified for it. Yeah, I mean, it is funny. It's such a weird double-edged sword. Like, it's great to be well-respected and get these amazing reviews, but then you're setting yourself up for a fall because, yeah, people uh, people love a success, but then they love to see they love to see someone fall. And uh, and so I don't know if you know. I, I again, I still don't fully understand why this movie is rotten, quote unquote, because. I think it's I think it's a terrific film, even if it's not a perfect film. Um, but I, I do have to think that his previous success might have factored into that, where it's like, where it's like, well, you're you're Ben Affleck, you made three great movies in a row, and if this is anything less than great, you know, we are not cutting you any slack. Yeah, I mean, like another this just came to me while we're talking. Um, Christopher Nolan does The Dark Knight, massive hit. Does Inception, another massive hit. And then Dark Knight Rises, where a movie that takes its chances and is a little more different from his two previous movies. And people were kind of mixed on that. And you're like, yeah, doesn't mean that's a bad movie. Like, sure, that may be my least favorite of the, the Dark Knight trilogy, but I don't think it's a bad movie. Right. And it just feels like it's, I guess maybe it's just an indictment on critics in general that it seems very binary, that it's either good or bad there's no in between and there's like i think it's bad so it is bad there is everybody's everybody believes their opinion is fact or it is law when it comes to movies yeah i know and and again i think that this is a movie that that even uh benefits from repeated viewings because i because i saw it three times that was that was never the plan i just kept getting invited to see it so i just kept going um it, it it plays better because again once you realize oh it's not the town it's something else it's a it's a novel it's it's years and years and years of this man's life with ups and downs and twists and turns and characters come in and out and it's a novel i think that once you're more realistic with what you with what the movie actually is i think it plays better and then you do pick up on a lot of those 
you know, the smaller details and, and things throughout. And I think that, again, like I, I, I couldn't imagine anyone watching it and going, oh, this is a bad movie. It's not a, there's, there's nothing bad about it. I think it's a, I think it's a great movie um, with maybe a couple little rooms, you know, a little bit of space for improvement, but good. Yeah. And another thought that I had is that since we're speaking about critics, do you think the reception for BBS turn the critics like like obviously they had the expectation of being a really good movie but do you think the reception bvs had kind of sent like attached an anchor to this movie i don't know i i don't think so honestly uh, i don't it's it's rough that it all happened the same year for Ben, but I don't think that was the issue. I th- I think the issue was that this movie just it it had very little promotion, and then as for why it, I, as for why it got negative review, reviews again, I think it has more to do with expectation than it does the movie itself. But yeah, I don't I don't think that Batman v Superman played into that. All right, I mean like. I would hope that was not the case. I mean, like, because The Accountant came out the same year. That kind of had mixed reviews, but I really enjoyed that movie. And it did reasonably well. And, like, this where, like, I, I agree that, like, there was no promotion for this movie. Especially- yeah, there was almost none. I think that they, I think Warner Brothers thought that, oh, it's a Ben Affleck movie, so reviews and awards will promote it whereas we won't have to so there was almost no promotion and then when reviews weren't overwhelmingly positive they were counting on that to build buzz and then it didn't so the movie just kind of disappeared i mean uh, as like you've said on your shows before like that warner brothers has done for the most part for the past couple years a really excellent job when it comes to marketing their movies i do feel like they really dropped the ball on this one Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As far as as far as marketing, uh, you know, they they released it at Christmas and uh, and did very little promotion for it. Yeah. I mean, like, granted, when I saw it, I, the theater I saw it was pretty packed and it was a decent sized theater. It wasn't like one of the small theaters at the corner of the movie theater that they kind of forget. Like, oh, yeah, we do have a theater down at the end of the hallway. It's not just an empty room. Mm-hmm. It was one of their one of their big theaters. And I'm like, I'm like. Right, at least I'm thinking to myself as I'm walking out, watching the crowd walk out with me. I'm like, well, people will go see it. It looks like it'll do financially well. But that, at least that was the thought I had during the, like, I think I, I saw it not the opening weekend, but I think I saw it the following weekend. And mm-hmm. it just, sadly, it did not, uh, did not do the numbers it was supposed to, or it was expected to do anyway. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a real shame. And I, I hope that people discover it in the years to come because Last year was it was my number two movie of the year. I, I loved it that much. I really did. And again, it got better every time I saw it. You know, uh, my there were tears in my eyes as the credits rolled. That you know, I, I found it very affecting emotionally. And so I I hope that people give it a shot over the years and that it finds its audience. Uh, it's a shame that it didn't find it this year. Right. Um, another question I had that I, do you think. Ben took on a little too much responsibility with this movie that he wrote, direct, and starred in it. I know he's written and directed previously, like the town, he was the main character, but there was a lot of balance with the other characters in that movie. Argo, he was a primary character, but the story cut to the people who were the hostages over uh, that they were trying to rescue. 
and so the every frame was not did not feature him. Do you think it was having a little too much? Um, I think it was too much responsibility for him. I I don't think he took on too much with the movie. He might have taken on too much for the year. Okay. You know, like like I think that if I think he is more than capable of writing, producing directing and starring in a movie i think he is but i think that because he had so much going on last year like you said uh promotion for batman v superman shooting and promotion for the accountant shooting post-production and promotion for live by night um shooting all of justice league plus you know the man has to sleep and eat and and try to see his kids so he had so much going on last year. I do think that maybe that did take its toll, and he probably did wasn't able to dedicate as much time and energy to post-production or whatever for Live By Night that he probably would have liked. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's it. I think that he just had so much going on last year that he wasn't able to, uh, you know, like, like all of us, he only has 24 hours in the day, and uh, he just had so much going on last year. I, I think that might have hurt it. Right. And I just wonder, like, my thoughts is for, like, the future, I, I'm just curious what his next project will be and what he'll do to kind of, like, one thing he's always good, he's always good at, like, all right, readjusting, like, all right, learn from this experience, and then next movie I'll do better. What do you think he'll learn to do for his next directorial movie? Well, uh, he is still, he signed a direct witness for the prosecution, um, and so... But that's got he's got some time before that. I think that right now, you know, as we've seen in the news, he's he's been going through a lot of things in his personal life. Uh, and as we you know, as we guessed, it, it has been a rough year for him. So I think he just needs to take some time to recharge his batteries. You know, I think he's, he's an extremely talented and smart person. I love his work. Um, and hopefully he, he just is able to take the the time he needs to really focus on his next project, whatever that might be, whether it be just starring in Batman or whether it being start prepping witness for the prosecution or whatever that might be. And I agree. I just hope that at least from a financial standpoint, they doesn't have a, that big of a budget that he needs to recoup in the off chance that he has another dud in his directorial uh, canon. I hope it doesn't happen like that. I mean, that's that's the one benefit of doing a smaller movie with having a huge star like that is because it's it'd be easier to recoup money. Um, all right, final thoughts on the movie, and then we'll wrap it up here. Uh, just that I, I adore the movie. I think that it's a great film. I think it's a great gangster film. It's a great character piece. Uh, so for anybody listening who, who hasn't given it a chance, you know, try to put put any, you know, put those expectations off to the side and just enjoy what I think is a really terrifically made film. I think uh, the performances are great. The story is great. The writing is great. And, uh, you know, definitely give it a shot. Like I said, it was my my number two film of 2016. I I, I did love it that much. Um, so hopefully it finds its audience and people will, will find it and appreciate it as much as I did. And I agree. I definitely, I also co-signed that that you should definitely check it out because I think it's worth your time. It's nice because a, we don't get that many period pieces anymore coming out of Hollywood. That's on this scale anyway. So I think definitely check it out. There performances are all solid. There's not a bad acting job in there. It's gorgeous. And, the story is really moving, so I highly recommend it. So, yeah, that's our that's our thoughts on Live by Night. 
Now, Andy, if you want people to find you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, if you're looking for for just me, you can find me on Twitter or on Instagram by searching my name. It's just Andy D Genova, A N D Y D I G E N O V A. But if you want to hear me talk about movies or Batman, you can do that. You can check out Real Fans for Real Movies or RF for RM or Holy Batcast, where uh, I'm always talking about Batman. So check it out there, and you can also find Holy Batcast on on Twitter and Instagram and everything. So uh, yeah, look me up, say hello. All right. Thank you. And if you want to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two. follow this podcast, a ginger geek pod on Twitter. And you can follow my YouTube and Facebook page under the same name of through the lens productions, where one of my short films, a cowardly lot is up as well as a bunch of stuff's in the work right now. And possibly a Batman fan film as I hope them to be able to shoot that next month. So, Andy, I want to thank you again for being a part on this, sh- uh, being a part of the show, and being a guest here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, really good time. So it's my pleasure, Tim. Thanks for the invite. No problem. Hope everybody's enjoyed this view of Live by Night, and stay tuned for more episodes of uh, Anything Goes Here. You can find it on iTunes. Subscribe if you want. If you want to have the immediate downloads as soon as a new episode's going up. And we're continuing our reviews. My, my friend Justin and I are continuing reviews of Christopher Nolan's filmography leading up to Dunkirk. So look forward to that. Thank you, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon.